Welcome to the show. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Handsy Uncle Joseph. He has hopped in the race. It is official. I'm going to give you a breakdown of his launch video, which should be hilarious. Um, I'm going to tell you his record. Got to stick to the policy. That's the most important thing. Um, And then also in the show today, we have Bill Maher turns on Robert Mueller, as we knew he would, and all of the um, more establishment-minded Democrats would. Nina Turner went on MSNBC, and she uh, masterfully dissected some of the anti-Bernie Sanders smears, which have become, unfortunately, prominent. Um... Tulsi Gabbard had a powerful and touching moment at one of her campaign events last week. And uh, we got a lot today, man. I I mean, somehow Hillary Clinton made it in the show. I wish she didn't, but she did. We're going to be making fun of both Ben Shapiro and Rave Dubin. So you can't, uh, you can't, can't go wrong if you're going in that direction. And then we're going to talk about the impact of Trump's tax cut. And you're not going to be surprised to learn that it had a negative impact on many working families. So anyway, without further ado, let's get started. And we'll do that with uh, the big news that we were not here for, which is Hansy Uncle Joseph. So Joe Biden, or as we call him, Hansy Uncle Joseph, he officially announced his 2020 campaign. Um... We all saw this coming from a mile away. There was no surprise here. Now, I have to say I'm a little bit saddened and disappointed by Trump's nickname for Joe Biden. He went with Sleepy Joe Biden, which I got to be honest with you, doesn't even make sense to me. Because he uses uh, 
Sleepy Chuck Todd or Sleepy Eyes Chuck Todd, which I think is actually kind of funny because um, it kind of does fit him, the Sleepy Eyes thing. For Joe Biden, Sleepy doesn't really fit, and he's also kind of recycling nicknames. So uh, Trump's fallen off his, uh, his game here in terms of nicknames, and usually that's uh, one of the very few things he does that I laugh at and I enjoy. Um, so huge fail. I mean, I guess somebody made the point to me, he can't call him Hansy because Trump is also Hansy, you know, grab him by the pussy tape, obviously, among many other things. I mean, there's been countless stories of Trump being at least as bad as Joe Biden, if not worse, in this department. So somebody said, well, you can't really call him that for that reason. But my response to that is, Trump doesn't give a fuck about hypocrisy. Like, that wouldn't occur to him for a second. Like, oh, I'm kind of guilty of the same shit, so I can't do it. No, he'll just bulldoze through and keep going. So I I don't think that's a really good reason to not do it, because Trump has already uh, made clear that his position on hypocrisy applying to him is, meh, don't give a shit. And he'll stick to it so much that eventually people would forget about it anyway. But anyway, um, let's take a look at Joe Biden's official announcement video here. And then we'll come back and break it down. And of course, I'm going to dive into his record so you know the real deal about Joe Biden. Of this nation are standing in the world 
why today I'm announcing my candidacy for President of the United States. Folks, America's an idea. An idea that's stronger than any army, bigger than any ocean, more powerful than any dictator or tyrant. It gives hope to the most desperate people on earth. It guarantees that everyone is treated with dignity and gives hate no safe harbor. It instills in every person in this country the belief that no matter where you start in life, there's nothing you can't achieve if you work at it. That's what we believe. And above all else, that's what's at stake in this election. We can't forget what happened in Charlottesville. Even more important, we have to remember who we are. This is America. You know when the right uses the term virtue signaling? This is basically the exact definition of that. So he's, this is his ad to announce his run for president. And the whole point of the ad is that, who, me, bro? I'm against, like, overt white supremacy. I'm against it when people march and, and scream, Jews will not replace us and they say white lives matter. I'm against it, man. I'm against, like, Richard Spencer, and I'm against, like, the KKK, and I'm against neo-Nazis, bro, all right? I don't care who knows it either. Wow, Joe! Wow, how brave you are! <laughs> what the fuck? Joe, we all file that under the duh category. I mean, that's like doing an ad and saying, like, me, bro? I just want everybody to know I'm against uh, I'm against child rape. I don't care who knows it. I'm going to scream it through a megaphone. I'm going to say it uh, from the rooftops. You know what else I'm against? I'm against murder. Please heap praise on me for being so virtuous. Ah! <laughs> ah! Uh, uh, the dude is stuck in like 1992, bro. He's... Uh, <laughs> I actually thought that Joe Biden's um, political instincts were a hell of a lot better than Hillary Clinton's, but he's already making the same kind of mistakes that she made. He's already making these mistakes. So, um, you know, just recently he said, I'm, I'm the most progressive and I have the most progressive record of anybody who's running for president. And then he corrected himself because this was before he announced and said, anybody who would run for president. So he's trying to say, me? I'm the most progressive. What do you mean? I'm, I'm the furthest left. That's what I am. What do you mean? Is there a question here? No. I'm the most progressive. Bernie Sanders, forget him. I'm the most progressive. So he said that. And then he also just said the other day, I'm not like Bernie Sanders. I don't think 500 billionaires are the, the cause of all of our problems. Wait, which is it? You were just saying you're the most progressive. And now you're slamming the guy who's obviously the most progressive in the race. And you're saying, why is he, why is he scapegoating billionaires, bro? Uh, why are you doing that? Why are you doing having some sort of intolerance towards the rich. Hmm, where did I hear that before? Oh, that's right. That was in the WikiLeaks releases on uh, what Hillary Clinton was saying behind closed doors. That well, we have the rigid uh, bigotry and intolerance against the rich in this country. Yeah, oh, who's going to give the billionaires a break? When will those guys get a break? Jesus Christ. Okay, so um, just at face value, here's what I despised about this ad. The shitty emotional music where they're like they picked the most over the top music where it's obvious they're trying to pull at your heartstrings by using tricks. Like, oh, isn't that music making you feel something? 
See, the music's playing, and he's also saying Nazis are bad. So brave, Joe. What a leader. What a leader you are. Um, and then the other thing is, the ad was over three minutes long. He didn't mention a single policy. Not a single policy. Not even policy on the exact stuff, the exact like focus of the ad. So in other words, the focus on the ad was like, white national is bad. Okay, well, are you even going to mention any policies about that narrow thing that you chose to focus on? No, he mentioned nothing. Nothing. He announced his run for president. It's 2019. He didn't say Medicare for all. He didn't say free college. He didn't say a living wage. Guys, he didn't even say... Because, again, his whole focus here is, like, on more uh, race issues. But he didn't even say, like, well, well, obviously what we need to do is dismantle this system, which has been unfair to black and brown people. So I'm in favor of ending the drug war. And I'm in favor of freeing every single nonviolent drug offender. Because the drug war was used to disproportionately crack down on communities of color. So this, this is why some people call it, some experts call it the new Jim Crow. Because you just say, okay, well, we can't officially keep them down, um, you know, as, as literal second-class citizens. So why not criminalize certain activities that the communities engage in and then disproportionately crack down on those communities? Joe, you could have easily said, let's free every nonviolent drug offender. You could have easily said that. You could have easily said, let's legalize marijuana. Could have easily said that. You could have easily said, let's get rid of uh, the mandatory minimums, which are used disproportionately on people of color, even if a white person commits the same crime. He didn't say any of it. You want to know why he didn't say any of it? Because he doesn't believe that. He's just virtue signaling. There's no there there. I'm a good person. Vote for me. Why? Because I'm so good. Don't you hear the emotional music in the background, bro? That means I'm good, bro. Ah, it's so gross. It's so gross. It's just fucking pandering. And, and... The Charlottesville protesters, the media went and spoke to them, and they were like, uh, we had no idea he was going to, like, try to use Charlottesville and what happened there for political gain for his launch ad. No idea. And I think, did he use the video of the terror attack? I could be mistaken about this, but they, I think they spoke to um, Heather's parents. That's the protester who was killed in a terror attack. And... I think they were like, we didn't, he didn't, like, let us know he's going to do that, and we're kind of not cool with that. I could be wrong about that, though. You go back and check. Go back and check to see. I feel like I saw a headline about that. Go back and check to see if he used the video of the actual terror attack. And this is what he's been doing, man. He did this with Stacey Abrams, too. He, him and his team floated all throughout the media. They called all their connections, and they have many. And they said, Maybe is Biden going to pick Stacey Abrams early on as his VP? Is that what he's going to do? Is that what he's going to do? And all the, the outlets ran with it. And then they went and spoke to Stacey Abrams, and she's like, he didn't even come and support me in the race I just had. Like, I just ran for governor of Georgia, and there was voter suppression, and I, and I ended up barely losing to a monster. But he didn't, even, he didn't even endorse me and come campaign for me. And now when it's politically convenient for him he pretends like me i'm down for the cause bro i care about strong black leaders no of course of course maybe stacy abrams is vp see stacy abrams is vp and 
one of the biggest problems with Biden, make no mistake about it, is he was one of the authors of the crime bill, and he was one of the biggest proponents of it. So he was one of these tough-on-crime Democrats. And, of course, that, again, was disproportionately used to crack down on nonviolent crimes and people of color. So it – all right, now enough about just the ad here. Let's get into specifics about uh, Hansy Uncle Joseph. So he's got a long history. What does he actually believe? What has he actually done? Forget his words. As, I'm against uh, white supremacy. Wow, Joe, how bold. Um, well, first and foremost, he voted for the Iraq War. Strike one, you're out. <laughs> I know I say that a lot, but this is, this is the real deal right here. I mean, this used to be considered something that disqualifies you from getting the Democratic nomination. It, it was for Obama. Remember, Obama used that and said, I, I was against the Iraq War. I was against it from the beginning. So maybe that shows leadership and judgment on my part. I'm not just going to go with the times. I'm going to maybe take a moral stand every now and then. So he was able to use that. Uh, Hillary Clinton voted for the Iraq War. We know what ended up with her, uh, what ended up happening with her in the race against Donald Trump. But Joe Biden voted for the Iraq War. So strike one, you're out. There's no two and three. You're done. <laughs> but let's continue anyway. If you needed a strike two, he voted for the Patriot Act. Again, this, it's, this is Hillary 2.0, man. Now, there is a slight difference between him and Hillary. He's actually a, a pretty solid debater, even though his record is trash. Uh, he absolutely dismantled Paul Ryan in the VP debate. But I still don't want to roll the dice, man. I don't want to roll the dice on a neoliberal centrist going back to the status quo pre-Trump, because that's what gave us Donald Trump. So we, the times have evolved. The times have changed. You know, people want the details. People want the specifics. People want to know your commitment to the policies. And then if you don't deliver on that, you're a failure. But this, why, why do you think he brings up no policies in, in his ad? Because he wants to keep it vague. He wants to keep it vague because when he gets uh, elected and he just kind of returns to the status quo, does some tweaks around the edges, he wants to be able to claim success and say, I'm, I'm a winner. What do you mean? I never said I was going to do Medicare for all, so I didn't get us Medicare for all. I never said I was going to do free college. I didn't get us free college. He hasn't spoken on it yet, but I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what he says about these things. He's been dodging Medicare for all talk like the plague because him and his idiot uh, advisors are like, how are we going to try to uh, you know, weasel our way out of this one? Um, he also supported the repeal of Glass-Steagall. That, of course, helped lead to the subprime mortgage crisis and the Great Recession. It's a, he's a Democrat for Wall Street deregulation. Let that sink in. He's a Democrat for Wall Street deregulation. Honestly, like the big cornerstone issues that defined an era, he was wrong on those decisions. Iraq War, Patriot Act, repeal of Glass-Steagall. He's wrong on all of them. NAFTA. He supported NAFTA. Oh, God damn it. Now, hilarious because he makes this ad all about race and he's so woke. Joe Biden, early on in his career, he originally opposed busing desegregation. And he, gas, he, he would gaslight everybody in the country, and he said, no, no, no. See, I totally agree with the end goal, bro. Like, I'm totally for desegregation, but just not this way. Just the buses. Leave the buses alone. What? So you're for desegregation, but just on buses, keep the segregation. Unbelievable. Um, 
He also supported the Wall Street bailout. He, of course, was one of the biggest pushers of the crime bill. He supported TPP. That's a huge red flag. Shows you he has he hasn't learned anything from NAFTA and all these other trade deals that he supported. Um, he supported permanent normal trade relations with China, which is probably even worse than NAFTA in terms of all the job loss and how it devastated the American economy. Um, he said Assad must go. So again, he didn't learn the lesson of intervention being bad from the Iraq war. He was still saying in the Obama years, Assad's got to go. He called Julian Assange, quote, a high-tech terrorist. So he's wrong on the very basic issue of the First Amendment and free speech and a free press. And oh yeah, by the way, he proposed a bill to make flag burning illegal. So massively unconstitutional, even Justice Antonin Scalia, who was insanely far right, said there's, there's no debate here. We, uh, the government obviously does not have the ability to ban something like flag burning. That's free speech 101. That's free speech 101. Joe Biden was dead wrong on that. Now, there are some positives. I don't want to make it seem like – I don't want to do like a full false equivalence and say like he's as bad as a Mitch McConnell type, type character because he's not. And, you know, the neoliberal centrists are what they are. They're disastrous, but they're neoliberal centrists. And centrism is further to the left on the political spectrum than fucking far-right nonsense and fascism. So, um, you know, he was good on the Iran deal. He was good on the GM bailout. He – Obamacare was better than nothing, and he obviously supported Obamacare. He authored the Violence Against Women Act. He's for some basic gun safety reforms. Um, he has a, a voting record that leans pro-union, although it's not fully pro-union. I forget the number. It was one of, you know how they have the report cards for some of these issues. It was 70-some-odd percent he voted. That's a lot better than a lot of the Republicans who would literally have zero percent. But again, that's not saying much, man. Like, that's not saying much. I shouldn't have to do the analysis where I have to say, well, you're a little better than a Republican because they're off the spectrum. They're off the spectrum. So in other words, you're like center-right or just right-wing, and they're off the spectrum to the far right. So it's just, like I shouldn't have to get to that point when discussing a Democratic presidential candidate uh, in the year 2019 running for 2020. I shouldn't have to bring that up. And then, you know, I already touched on this, but... He hasn't said a word about Medicare for all, and his he's doing this bullshit lie of, like, saying, I'm not taking any lobbyist money. Well, guess what? You know what he did? That's right. He's not taking any lobbyist money. He cut out the middleman and went right to the executive. That's what it means. Like, a lobbyist is, okay, I'm going to represent the interests of these executives. He's like, oh, I'm not taking any lobbyist money. But that's totally misleading because he just cut out the middleman of the lobbyist and went right to the CEO's. In fact, uh, literally, his, the day he announced he was doing a, an event with, a com, with the Comcast CEO and GOP donors. So he is taking money from some Republican donors. I mean, come on, man. He is the epitome of the status quo. He's waving a flag that says, let's go back to the mild tweaks around the edges of the Obama years, as opposed to doing moving forward and transforming this country into what it should have been all along which is a vibrant social democracy with universal health care, universal education, including college, paid vacation time, uh, you know, strong regulations to help the working class and to fight for working people. He, like, he's, he is the representative of the old school. And I said it before, I'll say it again, Joe Biden is going to tank in the polls. 
I think he's going to tank in the polls, man. He ran for president at least twice before, and he got obliterated at least twice before. So he's, he has the same problem Hillary Clinton does, that the idea of him to a lot of people is more appealing than the reality of him. So in other words, Hillary Clinton, when she was saying nothing, and before she jumped in the race, her approval rating was relatively high. They thought, oh, okay, whatever, Secretary of State, yeah, I guess totally confident, been around the system for a long time. And then she started talking and campaigning, and those numbers immediately plummeted. It's going to be the same with Joe Biden. The idea of Joe Biden, oh, yeah, sure, nostalgia, back to the Obama years, better than what we got now. We got a man baby in there now, at least Biden's an adult. Oh, yeah, I could totally see that. As soon as he starts talking, it's going to tank in the polls. Because at best, he's going to be contradictory. I'm the furthest left. Oh, no, I'm the most moderate. Uh, He'll say both things at once, just like Hillary Clinton. That's best case scenario. Worst case scenario, he just chooses the wrong strategy and just goes all in on, I'm the adult in the room and Medicare for all is stupid. (laughs) Yeah, try making that case to the Democratic base. Over 80% of the Democrats disagree with you. You're going to piss off 80% of your base? Are you fucking kidding me? You'll get obliterated. By the same token, even 51% of Republicans are for Medicare for all now. The country, it's over 70% of the country wants this. So if he decides, I'm going to run as Mr. Centrist guy, I'm the adult in the room who's going to tell you no things that other developed countries do are possible in the United States. Okay, you want to run that way? By all means, you'll tank even faster than I could have predicted. So Hansy Uncle Joseph is in the race and uh, tick-tock until he becomes totally irrelevant. Okay. Now we're going to go to Nina Turner. You know, I fucked up a little bit, man. I had a protein shake last night, and this taste like the aftertaste like stays in your mouth. Pause. <laughs> and it's like I woke up this morning, even of course after brushing my teeth and all that still, and it was like, what the fuck? It was weird. And then I had this weird new like breakfast bowl thing. It was trash. It was one of those things that was like way too healthy. Like there was eighty thousand vegetables in it and lentils and fucking all types of stuff. And a little bit of eggs. And I'm like, what the fuck is this? So two rookie mistakes on my part. Protein shake at night was a rookie mistake. And having some new, weird, overly healthy shit was a mistake. I should have just taken like an apple or a banana or something like that. Alright, anyway, Nina Turner. I got a video here. This video is a little bit long, but it's worth every second of it. So Nina Turner went on MSNBC. And uh, she masterfully dealt with some underhanded anti-Bernie Sanders smears. Let's take a look and then we'll discuss. You know the issue that they kept bringing up because they knew it would cause heat and dissension among us? Race. So guess what? The irony of it all is that what otherwise we have been always knowing as a civil rights issue has now become a national security issue. The best studies that I've seen put it down to just one thing, prejudice, that, that doctors and nurses don't hear 
African-American women's medical issues the same way that they hear the same things from white women. This past week, I had the opportunity to co-moderate the She the People Forum, and it's a candidate forum focused on women of color. Senators Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris received by far the warmest reception, connecting with the crowd and proposing specific policy ideas. And specifics was definitely the watchword. Take a look at what happened when another candidate, independent Senator Bernie Sanders, responded to questions from the audience by defaulting to his standard lines from 2016. As president, what would you do with the rise of white supremacist violence oh, right. to protect our communities? Absolutely. You know, as somebody who I, I know I date myself a little bit here, but I actually was at the March on Washington with Dr. King back in 1963. Well, joining me now is Marcus Farrell, a political strategist and former African-American outreach director for Bernie Sanders, Nina Turner, campaign co-chair for Bernie Sanders 2020, Jason Johnson, political MSNBC uh, political contributor and politics editor for TheRoot.com. Thank you all for being here. Uh, Nina, I'm going to go right to you right in the middle. Uh, good to see you. And uh, thank you. Okay, so let's talk about this. So at the forum on that stage, we, we didn't show a long clip of it, but there was like audible booing in the room when Senator Sanders went right to the I March with King. There was a more extended piece where he was asked specifically, and I asked him, what would you specifically do for black women? And he went back to Medicare for All and taking down the billionaire class. Like he said sort of the standard things that we now are all used to hearing Bernie Sanders say. But the audience started really catcalling and jeering. I mean, people were really upset by the fact that he didn't answer those questions and that he didn't directly address what women of color wanted to hear, but really just kind of said his standard thing. Why is it that Senator Sanders, knowing he's going to see the people, which is a forum for women of color, he's got you that he can talk to on his team, didn't, why wasn't he prepared to give specific answers on issues important to black women? And he has, joined. he does, and certainly I wish he had articulated those things in a deeper way, but certainly when he is on the trail. Or at all. I should say at, or at all. I mean, he didn't at all, so, not even in a deeper way. He just didn't. He didn't, he didn't even answer so, those questions at all. So for, for the senator, when we look at health care, for example, we know that black women are uninsured, about 14%, and when you link that to health care, it is vitally important that we do have Medicare for All because that will impact African-American women. We know that the maternal rate, the maternal mortality rate among African-American women is higher. And he talks about those things. He talks about the disparities within the disparities. I think for him, in terms of pivotal moments in his life that led him to really be a champion for justice, it was being at the March on Washington for him personally. And so the opportunity to wrap that into a larger vision for black women. He talks about more black doctors, more black dentists. But with all due respect, and I know that that is the campaign, that's what the campaign wants to put out there. With all due respect, Nina, in the moment when he could have articulated that in front of black women, if that is the case and he has this larger vision to wrap around, why didn't he just do that? For the senator, again, in that moment, I'm not sure what was happening for him in that moment, but I'm telling you what I have seen. You know, he gives the speeches talking about the disparities within the disparities, not, even when he's not talking to a majority African-American audience. The morning consult uh, poll shows very clearly that over that 
almost half of his supporters are of color. He's polling over 50% with women in general. So, yes, the senator does have a larger vision and being able to take what was a pivotal moment in his life and then connect that to why he has been such a justice warrior, that would have been certainly the moment to do that. Right. I mean, but maybe he should have said he's uh, because you could have done it. I was there. Was, my was question there. was is, are you, is the campaign concerned? Because one of the reasons that Senator Sanders did not uh, win the nomination is because he was not able to win a majority of African-American voters, particularly when you went down south. He did not do well in those primaries where the majority of the voters were black. He did not do well where the majority of voters were registered Democrats. Is the campaign at all concerned that he isn't improving upon and expanding his support among black women voters? Oh, he is expanding his support, Joy. I mean, we were just in South Carolina. The senator to this point has more African-American leaders endorsing his campaign in South Carolina than any other candidate. That is light years ahead of what happened in 2016. You know, we had the opportunity to visit Regenesis, which is in Greenville, South Carolina. It's a community health center where Senator Sanders, working along with Congressman Clyburn, were able to increase the funding for community health centers, which we know that 2018 million uh, citizens across this country uh, enjoy the services of those centers. So he is working very hard, $11 billion into the Affordable Care Act for community health centers. So we see a shift. Again, the polling shows time and time again that the senator is polling well in the African-American community, in the Latino community, and also among women. So things are happening. This is an example of one of those issues where the media, and by that I mean mainstream media, outlets like MSNBC, what they'll do is they'll try to push a narrative as they pretend like, oh, we're just calling it like it is. We're just calling balls and strikes. So, hey, man, Bernie Sanders, I mean, he struggles with people of color. He struggles with women. He struggles with women of color. So, I mean, what, what do you want me to do? I'm just reporting. I'm just reporting what happened. That's what I'm doing. So, hey, he was at this event. The event was primarily for women of color. And the reaction of the crowd, they weren't as on the side of Bernie as they were on the side of Kamala Harris, as they were on the side of uh, Elizabeth Warren. Now, we don't, we don't know how important that anecdotal story is. For all we know, it could have been just a handful of people in the audience who made it seem like they were anti-Bernie Sanders. Meanwhile, the polling shows he's doing better than anybody in the race. So, again, they're trying to push a narrative as they pretend like, oh, we're just calling balls and strikes. We're just telling it like it is. And it is what it is, man. Elizabeth Warren and and, uh, Kamala Harris, I mean, they're just doing much better among people of color, among women of color in particular. I mean, what do you want me to say? And then they're trying to, and this is where, how you know, see, they overreach, and that's always the hint that they're just not being honest actors here. Because um, Joanne Reed tried to say, well, you know, we gave Bernie the option to talk about specific policy ideas that will, would help women of color, and he just didn't answer the question. Yeah, Bernie Sanders, I'm sure Bernie Sanders didn't give specific policy answers. That's literally all he does. Now, you might not like the answers, Joanne Reed, and I'm sure you don't because you're not really on board with the policies that would help these people, okay? But 
He did give answers. So look at the reality of the situation, man. They try to make it seem like, oh, Bernie, he just, kept, he just went back and started talking about his regular stuff that he always talks about. Yeah, because it's a solution. It's a solution. The idea of like, oh, Bernie, why are you, you're in front of uh, women of color and you're talking about like health care and wages? Ugh, why don't you talk about the concerns of these women of color instead? What? I got news for you, everybody. Two-thirds, did you know this? Two-thirds of minimum wage earners are women. A disproportionate number of low-wage earners are people of color. So when Bernie talks about making the minimum wage a living wage, for example, that is a feminist issue. That is a racial issue. So when you, like, they try to poo-poo it and downplay it. Now, why is Joanne Reed downplaying it? Because she's comfortable. She's got plenty of money in the bank. She's doing stupendously well. And in her mind, well, the way that you appeal to, to women and the way that you appeal to people of color is to only talk about issues that are super specific to, to those communities, and you can never tie it into wages, you can never tie it into health care. But how condescending is that towards minority communities, man? I can't get over how condescending that is. I mean, that's like, talk about being out of touch with regular folks. Um, now, another interesting fact is, like, oh, Medicare for all, like, oh, my God, you're in front of women of color. Why won't you talk about issues that matter to them? A disproportionate number of the uninsured are people of color, many of them women. So, again, this is a racial issue. This is, a, you know, a feminist issue. But because, listen, a lot of it has to do with keep it real. He's an old white dude, so it's easy to try to paint him as, like, you know Bernie, he's like the rest of the old white guys, and demographically they're more likely to be like right-leaning and against people of color. And, I mean, that's just a case of at best sloppy thinking. At worst, you're generalizing and actually being somewhat bigoted towards Bernie. So it, it's, it's a shame that they're painting a narrative as they try to pretend like they're just calling balls and strikes when Nina Turner lays it all out there and she's like, I, I looked at the polls. The polls are crystal clear. It's the opposite of what you're saying. And then uh, to answer that specific question, like, oh, what are you going to do about the rise of white supremacist violence? Okay, let's answer that. Uh, under the Obama administration and an effort that was led by Republicans, they defunded the division of the FBI that was specific to, that specifically looked into white nationalist, white supremacist violence, domestic terrorism. And they focus all of their resources on Islamic extremism. Well, uh, under President Sanders, you know, what he could have said was, I'll, I would make sure that that becomes a focus again and we would put more resources towards stopping white supremacist violence because it is true we're seeing an uptick. We just saw a terror attack a few days ago in a synagogue. Um, in New Zealand, they had the Christchurch shooting, but it's part of a global, you know, movement, if you will. Um, there's, of course, the classic example of Dylan Roof, but the point is it's not just a one-off. There is a, you know, this rise of uh, white nationalist, white supremacist violence, and it is something that should be addressed. And in the same way that you have the FBI, in some instances, looking into Islamic extremism, you should have the FBI looking into white nationalist terrorism, and we shouldn't 
try to be politically correct and not offend Republicans and right-wingers, we, we should be actually correct and investigate all that stuff as well. So that would have been a specific answer to that. And then the final point is, um, they were like making fun of him for pointing out that he marched with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. If I were to create a list of things you're not allowed to laugh at, <laughs> it would be like you're mocking him. You have scorn for him for bringing up that he marched with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. At a time when Hillary Clinton was a Goldwater girl and she was a Republican, at a time when Joe Biden was arguing against busing desegregation, at a time when other politicians were totally wrong on a key important issue, Bernie Sanders was a leader. Bernie Sanders was on the right side back when it wasn't fashionable, fashionable to be on the right side. Bernie Sanders was on the right side back when we had this idea of like Martin Luther King Jr. was always viewed as he's always been a hero. No, no, no. Back then, the perception of the majority of Americans, the majority of Americans was, oh, what is this guy doing? He's unnecessarily, you know, bucking the natural order of things. He's overreaching. He's a rabble rouser. He's just causing trouble on purpose. Like, why are you doing this, man? Like, what are you doing? So he was viewed as like a radical. He was viewed as this extremist. In reality, we know now, he was just asking for the most basic common sense things imaginable. Well, Bernie Sanders, back when it was not fashionable, it was not cool to, to be on that side, he was on that side. And for a politician to bring up that he marched with MLK in the year 2019, to like have any amount of scorn for that or look down on that, that basically shows your hand as being a silly person or being a Democratic plant whose whole point is to try to besmirch Bernie when he was 100% correct. Because that, I mean, that is like, here's one thing you're always allowed to brag about if you march with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. You're always allowed to brag about that. You're always allowed to brag about voting against the Iraq war because you're correct. You're always allowed to brag about, uh, you know, being on the correct side of the civil rights movement because at the time it was not this overwhelming, like, obviously this is going to happen. No, they were fighting an uphill battle. So are you allowed to bring that up? You bet your fucking ass you're allowed to bring that up. Now, I get it. If people say, hey, man, you brought that up, but also you have no, like, your policy platform is not helping people of color today. But that's not true. His policy platform is doing it. It's the most progressive on that front. Bernie Sanders was leading also on the issue of ending the drug war. So, uh, listen, again, they're working backwards from their conclusion. Their conclusion, Bernie Sanders is out of touch. Bernie Sanders, people of color don't like Bernie Sanders. The polls show the exact opposite. So they're pushing a narrative as they're pretending like they're just calling balls and strikes. I'm happy Nina Turner was there to call it out. But I even go further than Nina Turner here. Call this out for what it is, man. It's a cynical, underhanded smear. That's what it is. And Joy Reid does not like Bernie and is basically trying out cutesy little clever ways to act like, is this campaign in trouble? I guess this campaign is in trouble. I mean, look at this one weird instance of a handful of people not liking him in an audience. And now let me try to pretend like it's a bad thing he brought up. He marched with Martin Luther King. Can you at least give us like something that makes us pause? I'll give it to him on the, you know what, on the, 
the what was it the CNN town hall where Bernie said the thing about the Boston bomber? Hey man, clever fucking smear, dude. Clever smear. God damn it. You know we did a long segment on that. I said how I thought Bernie should have answered the question, and but whatever you know third way new democratic centrist think tank came up with that. God damn it, they earned their pay, bro. They earned their pay for sure. This shit. This is just pathetic. This is next level pathetic. This isn't even close to convincing. And uh, thankfully, Nina Turner was there to set the record straight. All right, now let's go to Bill Maher. So perhaps unsurprisingly, Bill Maher has officially turned on his Lord and Savior, Robert Mueller, uh, after the release of the report. Take a look. Just because you have a stone face doesn't mean you belong on Mount Rushmore. For two years, America has had a crazy person in the White House, and for over two years, the Democrats have done fuck all about it because they were waiting for Mueller. We all sat around waiting for Prosecutor Jesus to turn in his big report. And he came back with, ask someone else. We hit the Superman, and we got Clark Kent. Trump calls the Mueller report the crazy Mueller report, and in a way he's right, because it's over 400 pages detailing terrible crimes by a corrupt president, yet... Mueller does not prosecute. If Dostoevsky had written the report, it would be called crime and no punishment. <laughs> Mueller's report is full of buts. Don Jr. met with the Russians, but Manafort gave internal polling data to a Russian, but Trump obstructed justice every day, but Robert Mueller, he loves big butts and he cannot lie. <laughs> Ferrara was on real time the week the bar, the bar summary came out, and I had one burning question. Could a different prosecutor have reached a completely different conclusion? And he said, yeah. That's all I need to know. I get it. Mueller's a Boy Scout, a straight arrow. He played it by the book. But you may have noticed for the past three years, we're kind of been off book. And greatness sometimes means not doing everything by the book. Thomas Jefferson made the Louisiana Purchase in 1803, doubling the size of the United States, without any authority to do so. But history called his name, and it said, take the shot, Mav. <laughs> That's what Spielberg's movie Lincoln is about. Even after the Emancipation Proclamation, black people were not free. That required a constitutional amendment initiated in Congress. And to make that happen, while he had a window to make it happen, Lincoln lied, bribed, freed prisoners, even fast-tracked an entire new state into the Union. None of which Mueller would have had to do. All he had to do is what people in the justice system do every day. Use the law to come to justice, not be so restricted by technicalities that the bad guys win. In Watergate, the special prosecutor, Jaworski, faced a very similar guideline, but he understood the big picture and his role in history, and he sued a sitting president anyway. Mueller could have done that, and the headline the next day would have been, Mueller breaks with precedent, indicts Trump, and then that would be our new reality. 
better reality. Because now Trump goes into the election as a vindicated martyr, and hell has no fury like a whiny little bitch scorned. I mean, all along, we were urging Democrats to not put all of their eggs in the Mueller basket and to not overfocus on Russiagate. And especially for the media, that's, that is what they did. They completely overfocused on this issue. They made it their main thing. And then it comes back, the report comes back, and it says, yeah, no collusion. There's an argument for obstruction, and by the way, I agree with that. There is an argument for obstruction, but there's no collusion. So we told them every step of the way, and what did they say in response? They dismissed us, and they fucking hated us. They hated us. They hated us because we were, like, raining on the, the partisan idiot parade, and we were like, hey, guys, y'all are being some partisan idiots right now. And they, it would be like, fuck you, like, shut the fuck up. And they would accuse us of, like, us, of all people, of, like, you guys are playing loose with the facts. We're playing loose with the facts? Look at all the, the fucking countless breathless, breathless articles about Russiagate and, and the Mueller report and how many of them are just flat out proven totally false, like, bombshell. Uh, Paul Manafort met with Julian Assange in the Ecuadorian embassy in London. Twice. That didn't even happen. That didn't even happen. So, like, as they were playing loose with the facts and working backwards from their conclusion and feeding into this narrative, and we warned them, don't do it, don't do it. Hey, focus on the policy issues. This is really important. This is really substantive. They mocked us. They derided us. They dismissed us. They fucking hated us. Now we're vindicated, and now what do they do? Immediately turn on their Lord and Savior, Mueller. Before, he was, oh, yes, Mueller. They release fucking videos on Twitter. We wish you a Mother Christmas. We wish you a Mother Christmas. We wish you a Mother Mother Christmas and wear partisan hacks. They were so happy. Oh, yes, Mother. Uh, Chelsea Handler was like, I'm sexually attracted to him because he's so hot and he's going to save the country. And then when we're proven right, they turn on him immediately. Now, uh, uh, I'm waiting for the, is Mother compromised by Russia? Um, now, the other thing I find hilarious about this is that Marr is one of those guys who I think quite correctly screamed at the far right to get over Russia, uh, not, not Russiagate, excuse me, Benghazi. Russiagate is democratic Benghazi. But yeah, that's the point, is that when it was on the other side and it was like, you know, hey, this isn't, like, the conclusions of this are not what you assumed they were all along, that, like, what, Hillary Clinton wanted our fucking ambassador to die, and Obama wanted our ambassador to die, and we're totally, like, Marr was like, get over it, come on, we have the conclusion, move on, let's focus on serious shit. But now, when the shoe's on the other foot, he's like, oh, I'm not going to get over it, I'm not going to move on, and I'm going to continue harping away at this, and now I'm going to blame the person who did the investigation. So, he's Totally, I mean, he just exposes himself as a rank partisan hack and hypocrite here. And then the final point is this, man. He really has an, um, an infantile view of politics because, like, what does he think was going to happen, even under the best-case scenario? So your boy Mueller rides in on his white horse to save us all, but even if Trump was magically removed from office and he didn't like cause a constitutional crisis by fighting back, which he obviously immediately would have done 
But even if he didn't and he was magically removed from office, you have Pence and all of the same policies are going to be implemented. So the resistance still has to be just as aggressive, except now it's got to be on the stuff it should have been all along, which is policy, Bill, policy. See, that was like the main thing that drove me nuts about this is like there there was always this weird belief a couple layers removed in their subconscious of like, if we just get rid of Trump, everything will be okay. Not only will it not be okay, we would literally be in the exact same situation in terms of the shitty policies being implemented. And perhaps the only difference is you might care even less because the guy, the guy who's doing it this time, if it was Pence, is a polite, mild-mannered dude who lulls you to sleep as he passes the same kind of Wall Street deregulation, as he does the same tax cuts for the uber-rich and corporations, as he continues bombing all the same countries that Trump is in the midst of bombing. So that's why all along you had to be principled and you had to be focused on policies. You had to resist the further Wall Street deregulation. You had to resist the bombing of the zillion more countries that were bombing. You have to resist the tax cuts for the rich. You have to resist the destruction of the EPA and the destruction of our entire regulatory bodies and our regulatory uh, agencies. This is what you had to resist. And the fact that you weren't able to do it shows me you either don't really care about that result or you do care, but you're totally incompetent. So that's the thing is like what even under your best case scenario, Bill, what happens? What happens? And listen, he's saying I want I wanted him indicted. I wanted Donald Trump indicted. But then, Bill, you just set up a precedent. So let's say Mueller says, we're going to ignore the Constitution and we're going to indict the president. Well, you just set up a precedent where the opposition party can set up some bullshit fucking investigation. And then under on flimsy pretenses, because the report said no collusion. So on on flimsy pretenses, you could remove a president. Now, imagine you set that precedent and then next is President Bernie Sanders, and the Republicans are, uh, have the majority in the House and have the majority in the Senate. Then what? Then what? You know how quickly they would open, like, eight bullshit investigations? And they'd find one little nugget with a half-truth in it where they say, well, what are we going to do? We're indicting the, the sitting president. What? So the opposition party can set up a special investigation and then – The special investigator can indict the sitting president and they can try to remove the sitting president. When the Constitution is crystal clear, the way you go after the president is through impeachment. It has to be through impeachment. So if you like this is why I can't stand people like Bill Maher at this point is that this is what hack partisan commentary looks like. And they refuse to grapple with the precedent they set and the principle that they're buying into. And once you buy into this principle that the opposition party or the deep state and the intelligence agencies can, on flimsy grounds, go after the president, that will immediately be used on day one against a left-wing president. Immediately be used on day one against the lefty. Even quicker than against a right-winger, because at least the right-winger in the minds of the deep state, at least Trump is feeding that military-industrial complex beast. At least he's feeding his Wall Street allies and his corporate allies. With Bernie, those people are his enemies. The military-industrial complex, his enemies. The corporations, his enemies. The rich, his enemies. So he would actually be standing up to power, and this would be power's way of striking back at him and getting him out of there before he hurts them too much. So 
So that's, Bill, that's the problem. Like, they're refusing to grapple with the long-term impact of what they're asking for. And that's what's so frustrating. And he's also refusing to grapple with the reality that if you were to actually impeach Donald Trump, guaranteed, it turns out his rabid base more than anything else could possibly do it. And you're making it much more likely he can win in 2020 if you make him this martyr. But that's what Bill's arguing for is let's make him the martyr. And he said, like, he argued there, like, now Trump is going to claim vindication. Well, yeah. So maybe the problem was the, the, the specific focus of the investigation from the beginning. Maybe if you had focused like a hawk on emoluments, or maybe if you had focused like a hawk on the illegal war in Yemen where we're aiding a genocide, if that was your focus, those arguments are much more powerful. And he's guilty. So perhaps he wouldn't be a martyr. But when you made the focus of the report, this goofy idea of he's a Manchurian candidate and there's collusion with the Russian government when virtually all of his policies are against the Russian government, of course he was going to get the claim vindication because it was obvious from the beginning that what they were claiming was not true. So you're like, he's just, he can't help himself. He just hates Trump so much that it's just his, his reasoning has broken down and there's no, there's no grappling with what would happen if he even got his way. So I just find this kind of commentary insufferable. We knew they were going to turn on Mueller eventually before he was the Lord and Savior. Now he's the uh, part of the problem. And, you know, maybe come up with better tactics because it's not Donald Trump is the easiest political target in the world. And if I was running... Um, the opposition to him, and I got to control, if I'm emperor of the Democratic Party and I'm emperor of their resistance, and I got to control the ways in which we attack him, his approval rating would be like fucking 18%. Right now, it's 39%, which is low as fuck, by the way, which, because Trump is self-destructing enough on his own. But, you know, with an adequate, intelligent, strong resistance, you absolutely can make the 2020 victory a guarantee for the Democrats, but more importantly, a guarantee a guaranteed victory for the left, and that would mean actually fixing the country and getting the right policies implemented. But in order to use this line of thought, you actually have to give a shit about policy, and I don't think Bill Maher does. I think he's just playing partisan politics. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, we got Tulsi Gabbard. Uh, had a powerful and touching moment on her, on the campaign trail I'm going to show you. And then we have uh, the political genius of Meghan McCain who uh, weighed in on an anti-Semitic terror attack, and you'll never guess who she blamed. Slash, you will guess exactly who she blamed. Stay right there. We'll be right back.
Alright, we are back, bitch. We are back. Goddamn chair, bro. All right, let's uh, let's let's keep it rolling along here, and we'll do that with uh, Tulsi Gabbard. You're you're gonna enjoy this video, I think. I certainly did. Try not to tear up. So Tulsi Gabbard had a very powerful and touching moment at one of her campaign events last week. Take a look at this clip.
heart with all of us. We speak for so many whose voices are not being heard. You have just laid out why why I'm running for president. It's not, it's not a political ambition that I've had for myself. With the obstacles that are in place and the challenges that exist, and because of the people that you're talking about, people whose lives are being impacted, that make me work tirelessly to run for president to bring about this change. We're not naive to the challenges that lay before us, or the obstacles that are placed ahead of us, or the smear tactics uh, that are used against us. Yes, it's coming from within our own party. The most attacks I get are not from Republicans. They're from Democrats. They're from people in the mainstream media. They're from people in the foreign policy establishment that you're talking about, people who represent the interests of the military-industrial complex. But you know what? You know what? The answer to how we overcome this, done. It's we the people. The stronger they come, the stronger we respond. And you know what? We don't respond. We don't respond to their dirty tactics or their hate with more hate. We respond with strength and love and our message of peace and humanity. We cannot lose faith in the power that we hold within our own hands, our own feet, our own voices in our hearts. It is only when we reclaim our own voices and our own power in dictating the change in this country that we need to make that we can be successful. People will get into a lot of conversations about uh, political tactics and how do we win this race and who's going to beat Donald Trump bluntly. I might get in trouble for saying this. What does it matter if we beat Donald Trump if we end up with someone who will perpetuate the very same... That was good. That was really good. So what she's doing, uh, perhaps better than anybody, is uh, she's linking the idea of ending our regime change wars. She's linking that with reinvestment at home. And that is a powerful message because what it does is it takes two separate issues. Well, they appear separate, but it links them and it makes them one. Because you get to say, why are we, like, what a waste to take all of our resources and all of our lives and civilian lives on the other side and waste all of that. Meanwhile, our country's crumbling, our workers are struggling, there's extreme poverty in this country, uh, there's hookworm in rural parts of the South, which is basically a third world disease, 
and it's back because of our terrible infrastructure and terrible uh, sewage system in certain places in this country that have not been uh, developed properly. So she's taking issues that appear to be two separate issues. She's making it one issue, and that is a powerful message that resonates. Now, the other thing that she's doing, which I think is a wonderful idea, is she's taking on her own party. She's saying, I'm not here to play nice, man. I'm not here to play nice. Um, I will take on my own party when my own party is wrong. And that's a powerful message that resonates with the people. But I think that you don't see uh, many politicians take that line because the party has a thousand ways to Sunday to screw you over further. So it's tough from basically within the belly of the beast to stand up to the beast. And, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders has, I think, quite masterfully walked the line of calling out the party when it requires calling out, but then in other instances, knowing where the line is and where he could kind of soft uh, play it, where they're not going to, you know, you wouldn't end up sabotaging yourself. Now, it's true in 2016, the DNC basically rigged it against them. That's obvious. We all know that. And, you know. WikiLeaks proved that. Um, but what he's been doing since then, and a lot of people might not know this, is he's basically been laying the groundwork to, as I've termed it, trump the Democratic primary. So in other words, even if they want to try to do underhanded tricks against him, it, it won't work. But I love Tulsi because she, um, she kind of functions as an attack dog even against the political establishment of the Democratic Party. And um, I think that that is incredibly powerful. And I also think, by the way, that the polls I've seen are not indicative of the reality on the ground for a variety of reasons. We've gone into the methodology of certain polls, and we've you know realized that they oversample older voters. But I think Tulsi's going to do a hell of a lot better in this election than um, – she gets credit for. I really do believe that. Now, the media has relentlessly smeared her, and she's done well to keep her head above water and, and keep fighting on. Um, but certainly the amount of support she has on the ground far surpasses, you know, fill in the blank, silly people like Jay Inslee and fucking Seth Moulton and shit. <laughs> so, but it's funny because the amount of credibility that's granted to honestly comical candidates like Eric Swalwell, mainstream media will take them seriously. And will take him seriously. And for Tulsi, no, they don't take her seriously. And in fact, they relentlessly smear her. And you get a sense as to why that is in this clip. Because she's not going to focus on the safe issues. That's Eric Swalwell's whole thing is like, Russia gate, Russia, Trump's a Manchurian candidate. Now that imploded, but he doesn't care. He's going forward anyway like a bull in a china shop. Whereas Tulsi's focusing on serious issues, and she's even calling out the establishment of her own party. So that's why she's not um, treated, forget kindly, she's not treated even objectively by the media. But I do think that Tulsi's also, this strategy, as a, apart from being just factually correct, 
She's also, uh, this is the long game. Because you know who was most known for this his entire career? Bernie Sanders. He's an independent. You know, super rare for an independent to win any kind of election in the U.S., but he did. He won in Vermont, and uh, he always has called out not just the Republicans, but also the Democrats. And maybe that's one of the reasons why he's one of the most popular politicians. Not one of the most. He is the most popular politician in the country. So Tulsi's kind of paving that lane for herself here. And uh, this was an amazing moment. Her commentary was great. And also, um, it was very touching when she hugged this woman, who obviously has experienced quite a bit and is obviously focused on the very important issues that are at stake in this election. Okay, now let's go to one of the most annoying people on the planet, Meghan McCain. So the brilliant political genius, Meghan McCain, who obviously has earned her career through hard work and raw talent, she weighed in on the terror attack that just happened at a synagogue in California. Uh, This happened over the weekend. And, you know, the terrorist is a white supremacist. He was active on 8chan, and he recently tried to also do a terror attack against a mosque. He tried to commit arson at a mosque. So there's no, you know, there's no denying this guy's political affiliation. He's crystal clear about it. He's far right, and he's a white nationalist and a white supremacist. Well, let's see Megan's contribution to the dialogue about this terror attack. much more quickly than they could with Christchurch, but that is a real issue. Yeah, and one that I think that Silicon Valley should have their feet held to the fire. I do think when we're having conversations about anti-Semitism, we should be looking at the most extreme on both sides, and I would bring up Congresswoman Ilhan Omar and some of her comments that got so much attention, and in my opinion, Nancy Pelosi wasn't hard enough in her response to her, you know, trafficking in anti-Semitic language, talking about all about the Benjamins and how uh, Jewish people had hypnotized the world, so I think when you're talking about rhetoric and you want to talk about President Trump, and by the way, I agree that he needs to have his feet held to the fire as well, but we're talking about it on both sides of the aisle as well. What, what I think part of this is, is uh, like, you know, like both sides are bad, and they both do things that are not good, and like, they're both equally culpable for a white supremacist terror attack against the synagogue. This is what happens when you have brainless fail daughters of shitty politicians anyway, but brainless fail daughters uh, having national attention and national prominence simply because she was lucky enough to be part of the Good Sperm Club. This is what happened. Do you realize how stupid that is what she said? Now, on top of being stupid, it's also dangerous because Ilhan Omar gets death threats on a regular basis, and this is only going to make them go up because all this unnecessary attention, blaming her, blaming her, blaming her. I mean, the guy who did the terror attack literally also tried to attack a mosque. So you think he's sitting around going, I wonder what a Somali-American Muslim congresswoman thinks. I would like to implement exactly what her philosophy is. What? No, he despises her. He would also kill her if he had the opportunity. And 
what was she saying? She was calling out APAC. Everybody knows this if you're willing to be intellectually honest and if you're willing to be objective. She was saying money controls politics, and there is no special exemption for Israeli money. No, Israeli money also controls politics. She's routinely called out Saudi Arabia as well. Is she an Islamophobe as a result of that? Because that's the same logic. She's, oh, she's an Islamophobe because she keeps calling out the, the Saudi lobby. The whole point of calling out APAC is to call out the right-wing Israeli lobby, where they buy politicians to do the bidding of the Israeli government, the Netanyahu government, the Likud government. Hey, keep sending us money, keep sending us weapons. And yeah, the only reason you have U.S. politicians going in that direction, only a small number of them are for ideological reasons. You could say evangelical Christians believe in that for ideological reasons. But most of it's corruption. We'll do the bidding of you because you help fund our campaigns. This is obvious. This is obvious. But no, because she's a, a black, Somali-American, Muslim woman, she gets smeared. And so now she's somehow responsible for a white supremacist terror attack when she's the victim of white supremacist death threats on a regular basis? Megan, let me explain something to you. You're in over your head. You're a joke, okay? You're lucky to be in the position that you're in. Because in any world that made sense, Megan McCain is, a, is just like a living argument, a living proof, I should say, that we don't live in a meritocracy. Living proof. Do you think she like, deserves to be sitting at a, a round table? Not that the other people are geniuses either, because they're not. But is she like one of the top political minds in, in the country? Should she be one of the philosopher kings pontificating on the state of politics in America today for you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people to see and hear? Has she earned that position? Are her thoughts just that brilliant that everybody must hear her because... Her IQ is off the charts, and her philosophy is ironclad and brilliant. No. Everybody knows she's a joke. Again, if you're willing to be intellectually honest, right-wingers hate her, left-wingers hate her, and it's not like, oh, my God, they hate her, so she must be saying the truth. No, she offers nothing to the conversation. But now fucking platitudes and uh, baseless anger The thing that's most frustrating about her is I don't even think I don't think she even realizes this. I don't think she even realizes that like you're only where you are because of your shitty dad. And again, in any world that made sense there was a meritocracy, you'd be down 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 at the bottom. You wouldn't even be able to attract 17 people with a YouTube channel. So consider yourself lucky that you've even gotten to the point where I can dunk on you for saying incredibly stupid shit and blaming a black Somali-American Muslim congresswoman for a white supremacist act of terror. All right, unfortunately, Hillary's back in the news. Here we go. So Hillary Clinton did an event in Washington, D.C. She's touring now with Bill Clinton. Uh, I like how they're, they're functionally acting like comedians and like touring the country because she's not in the White House. 
So she was asked what advice she would give to the 2020 candidates. Now, first of all, don't ask her that. That's the last person you should ask that question to. She knows the least about beating Donald Trump because she failed to beat Donald Trump. So whatever she says, do the opposite. That's, that's the reality of the situation. But beyond that, look at the first thing that she brings up when asked this question. This is incredible. campaign is for, it's, it's for people uh, to get out there, make their case, uh, be compared, be questioned. Uh, but I think what everyone is hoping for is a nominee who will win both the popular vote and the Electoral College. Uh, at the end of this process, you know, most importantly, someone who can be president, unite the country, and win. That's what we should look for. What advice would you have for 2020 candidates, I mean, based on the experiences you had in 2016? Don't get on the wrong side of Vladimir Putin. That would be the first. Um, Lady, you're constituents. Of course, that's impossible if you stand up for America. Mm, yes. <laughs> yes. The reason my Hillary lost is because she stands up for America and she loves the country. That's why she lost. Yes. Vladimir Putin is the reason why she lost. <laughs> Pass the caviar. Yeah. Jesus Christ, man. She has learned nothing. She's learned nothing. In this entire time since she lost to Donald Trump, a reality star buffoon. She's learned nothing. She hasn't had a moment where she went, you know what? Maybe not campaigning in the Rust Belt was a mistake. You know what? Maybe not being a populist on trade and economics was a mistake. You know what? Maybe uh, picking the most bland dude on the planet Tim Kaine, centrist goon, goofy-ass Tim Kaine, maybe picking him to be VP and snubbing my base was a mistake. You know what? Maybe being a dick to Bernie Sanders and stealing the nomination from him was a mistake. Mm, You know what? Maybe I should have been aggressively arguing for Medicare for all, and that would have been enough to get me over the edge. You know what? Maybe I should have reeled it in just like 8% with my nonstop barrage of platitudes and cliches. Stronger together! Yay! Break down the barrier! Yay! Maybe I should have not done the shitty fucking song of um, the Katy Perry bullshit song that everybody heard was like, oh, oh, this is my fight song. Gonna lose to Donald Trump song. Oh, God damn it, Hillary. You could have said anything to any of your fucking 14,762 mistakes. Hey, you know what? Maybe I shouldn't have pivoted to the right of Trump on fucking foreign policy issues in the debates. Maybe I shouldn't have done that. And there were so many, oh, my God. If I was Hillary Clinton, 
forget me. Uh, and you name any lefty who's in my space and does what I do, like 80% of the prominent lefties running Hillary's campaign, assuming they would have done it, which they wouldn't because they don't like her, but she would have won. If she was actually listening to people who knew the, what the fuck they were talking about, she would have won. But she hires the worst fucking people in the country who know absolutely nothing. And by the way, the argument from that real left on Russiagate has been what? Well, keep it real, man. Democrats are using this as an excuse for being unpopular. So if you think about this dynamic, because it's totally true. If Hillary Clinton really believes, well, the reason I lost was Vladimir Putin. Like, you know, he gave the election to Trump. He fucking hacked the voter rolls. He flipped votes. He literally gave the election to Donald Trump. There was interference. There was an attack on our democracy. I lost because of Vladimir Putin. If she really believes that, then what's the logical conclusion? I did nothing wrong. I did nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong with my campaigning. There's nothing wrong with my political strategy. There's nothing wrong with my philosophy. Neoliberal centrist corporatism. Nothing wrong with it. Nothing wrong with it. That's obviously the only way to win elections is that. And that's an article of faith at this point. It's like we're a cult for saying this is the way that works, even though it hasn't fucking worked since 1992. 96, to be fair, actually. Her, her uh, husband made it work. Um, but it, it's not the 1990s anymore. Times have changed completely. So, but if you really believe it's Vladimir Putin's fault, you have to change anything. You have to change nothing. And what are they going to do? They're going to still try to shove down our throats a neoliberal corporate centrist. That's what they're going to do. So, it, so now, do you see the dynamic and why the left was so mad about Russiagate and why our hair was on fire? Because we saw the writing on the wall, and the writing on the wall was, no, 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 no. Forget the insurgent left. Forget the populist left. Forget the people screaming for Medicare for all and free college and a living wage and ending the wars and a, uh, an infrastructure deal and a Green New Deal. Forget these lefties who are obviously passionate, obviously energetic, and obviously popular. Forget them, forget them, forget them, because the reason we lost is only because of Vladimir Putin, so it's not our fault at all, at all. And that was always the problem with Russiagate. That was always the problem. And this was the, the undertone of what was going on. And, you know, it was Robbie Mook, who was her campaign manager, who on the way out the door after they lost basically blamed Putin. And the media liked that narrative because the media, keep it real, man, people say, oh, the media is, uh, has a left-wing bias. No, they don't. They, have a, they are left-leaning on social issues. They don't hate gay people. They don't hate black people because you know what? Those people are customers, too. They live in our corporate oligarchy, too. So they're liberal and, and leftist on social issues. On economic issues, they are deeply conservative and in favor of the status quo which is why CNN, MSNBC, the Nightly News, they favor corporate Democrats. So they were more than willing to go along with this bullshit narrative that the only reason Hillary lost was because Vladimir Putin, that's it. So they did, and they hyped up the threat nonsense for fucking years now, and ultimately Mueller's report comes back and says no collusion. Did that stop Hillary at all? Was she able to come to terms with the fact that actually the election interference was a couple hundred thousand dollars worth of Facebook ads that like negative four people saw. That's an attack on democracy, according to her, yes. Was she able to come to terms with the fact that uh, the other aspect of the attack was WikiLeaks giving us factual information on what the DNC was doing and what she was saying in speeches? No. 
she can't talk about the substance of the leak. So just say that the leaks are, you know, if you talk about the leaks, you're like a Russian agent or you're a traitor to the country or you're treasonous. I can't talk about the substance of it. So, oh my God, look at the source. I'm going to attack the messenger 101 here. So this is, even with the report coming back saying no collusion, she's still like, yeah, I blame Russia, blame Putin. She's unwilling to grapple with her own faults because it would be too painful to do so. All right, let's make fun of Ben Shapiro and Rave Dubin. So Ben Shapiro went on Rave Dubin show yet again, and um, Ben keeps telling Rave Dubin to fuck off with his gay party invites. <laughs> so this is this is hilarious for so many reasons, and it's stupid for so many reasons. But I enjoy it. Let's take a look, and then we'll discuss. Can I make a bold prediction? Sure. 30 years from now, we're going to be sitting here doing this, hopefully in a mm-hmm. bigger garage. <laughs> um, in Texas, and, probably. And yeah. you may well have moved me on the uh, on the abortion issue, and I think I may have moved you on coming to an anniversary party. What, what do you think about that? I think there's a possibility. I mean, I'd, I'd have to I'd have to think about that again. The the issue, as you know, you know, not to get back yeah. into well territory. Uh, you know, I. I I think it would be unlikely that you'd move me, but I, I can never rule out the possibility of being moved on anything, obviously. Um, and again, this is this comes back down to, you know, the difference between approving of activity and approving of, of human beings. They, yeah, I wouldn't, if you invited me to a party on, on Friday night, I also wouldn't go, right? I mean, like, so it's, it's not something definitely I Definitely not a Shabbat. Uh, uh, a Shabbat party. anniversary, I think, <laughs> probably is out, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a Sunday afternoon. Uh, a Sunday afternoon gay-ish anniversary, Definitely. like, or or maybe just, well, how, how about just have, like, a freaking barbecue, dude? Like, yeah, everything well, happening? No, but the, the party's not going to be gay. It's just, yeah, we'll have a barbecue. Okay. It'll just be a barbecue. It, Nothing right. gay is going to happen there. When, I, I wasn't worried it was going to turn into an orgy back there or something. Like, like, orgy. I wasn't worried you were going to bring out the village people or you something. You know that like, gay people have parties just the same, well, Wait, what? What? No, that's crazy. Yeah. No, I was pretty well aware of that, in fact. And, in fact, as I've said a thousand times, happy to go out to dinner my wife, your husband, happy to go out to dinner and, and do any of that stuff as long as it's not like, you know, rah, rah, here's the thing you think is sinful, join me in celebrating it. Like that's, but again, that appeals, that applies to a wide variety of sins. That it, I mean, listen, it's harder, on, it's harder on members of my family than anybody else. Like I've said before, I wouldn't attend an intermarriage. Right? Like a Jew marries an Andre, I won't attend an intermarriage. Yeah. So th- this is exactly the same issue. Bro, he's actually against you as a person, Dave. I know Dave is trying to make it all okay. Dave is trying to make his new posture as me. I'm the last liberal left. That's me. I'm a classical liberal. He says that half the time, and then the other half the time, it's just like, I'm only going to say things that are conservative, and I'm only going to beat up on the left. But somehow, I'm the last liberal left, or whatever. Like, he's, he's back and forth, back and forth. Recently... Uh, Quillette, which is a right-wing outlet, has gone after 
Rubin and the in intellectual dark web, and they basically said, like, hey, listen, let's keep it real. You guys are being very conservative. Like, most of the people who are in the intellectual dark web, all they do is beat up on the left. So let's just keep it real and call it for what it is. Hey, we're conservative over here at Quillette, but all you do is beat up on the left. So, like, don't try, don't try to pretend like us. We're, like, in the middle, and we're, we have people spanning the ideological spectrum. It does, if you take a political compass test and you come out on the left, but all you do is shit on the left, well, then that context is very important. It's not like you're a leftist and you're arguing for leftist ideas. And, of course, I'm not talking about Rubin because he's not. He's, like, full libertarian-type guy now. Um, but this is, like, the second or third time this happened where Ben Shapiro has uh, sat down with Rave Dubin and Rave Dubin is like, okay, Art, will you be my friend? <laughs> like, would you come to a party with me and my husband if it's for an anniversary? Or, And Ben, the first time, and maybe, I don't know, was this two or three times this happened now? But the last clip I saw from the last time this happened, Ben was basically like, <laughs> no, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go. And you can tell Rave Dubin is surprised by that. He's like, what? I, I don't get it. Yeah, dude, he doesn't fucking agree. He thinks your, your existence is sinful. He thinks that you should be able to overcome the temptation of your basic sex drive. Because I don't agree with how you're doing it. It's so, so much, you know, they love to talk so much about this whole, like, us, we're the reasonable people. I'm all about live and let live, bro. But literally your entire existence, he thinks, is wrong and sinful. And maybe in a moment of honesty, if you catch him, he'd say evil. So when you say, hey, would you come to a party with me and my husband? He's like, well, if it's not specifically for an anniversary, well, then I guess. But if it is for an anniversary, I don't know, man. I have a moral objection to it. And his reasoning was the most hilarious thing I've ever heard. He goes, well, uh, I mean, listen, it's okay. I'm not just a bigot against gay people. I'm also a bigot against non-Jews. Oh, Ben, <laughs> that's not the convincing response you think it is. He's like, I, would, I wouldn't attend an intermarriage either. I mean, I wouldn't attend an intermarriage. I mean, fuck non-Jews too, right? Fuck gay people and fuck non-Jews, right? I was like, me? Being a bigot? I mean, it's okay because I'm also a, an even bigger bigot in this area too. And listen, I'm not... Because a lot of Ben Shapiro fans will hear what I'm saying now, and they'll be triggered and be like, ah, how could you call him a bigot? But it's like, I'm not, I'm not offended by what he's saying. I'm just saying it's really stupid. Like, what he's saying is incredibly dumb. Like, that is so dumb. You, but you have to actually believe, like, gayness is basically on the moral equivalent of something like murder to not want to celebrate in the gayness. You know what I mean? To not want to go to, like, a gay anniversary party. Because if you ask me, like, you know, somebody is, is a fucking serial killer and he's out of prison and, hey, you want to go to his birthday or something? I'd be like, no, nah, kind of fuck that guy. Fuck him. I don't like him. Why? Because that's actually something that's sinful in his language. In my mind, it's just immoral or unethical. Um, so I would have a moral objection. No, I'm not going to tell it. That guy's an asshole. Fuck him. I'm not going there. He murdered eight people, including women and children. I'm not going to fucking go in his party. But see, that's the thing, is that in Ben Shapiro's mind, Rave Dubin's existence and, and, and the way he lives his life, his sexuality, that is a sin. That, that is immoral. That is unethical. 
That is the equivalent of going to the birthday party of a dude who murdered eight people. And my whole point here is to say, well, that's just incredibly stupid. Like, if you believe that, you have flimsy reasoning to believe that. And it's unquestionably backed by ancient Bronze Age religious texts that are wrong in so many other ways as well, where they say, hey, it's an abomination in the eyes of God if you wear a mix of two different fabrics. It's an abomination in the eyes of God if you eat shellfish. In the Bible, there are seven-headed dragons. That's in the Old Testament. That's, you know, he believes in the Old Testament. He believes in the Torah. Um, you know, they talk about uh, how they allude to the earth being flat. They talk about sailing to the four corners of the earth. I mean, in the Bible, there are instances of a, a father having sex with his daughters. I think that's the story of Lot. There's, like, there's so much fucked up stuff. And he goes to this document and he goes, I'm going to base my uh, current morality off of this. And it brings you to such a ridiculous place that you're looking in the eyes of somebody who's supposed to be your friend. And you're telling your friend, like, no, I, c I can't go to your gay celebration because it's immoral. It's wrong. It's sinful. It's wrong. Or it's not at all sinful, and the whole basis of your garbage moral system, which is more like a non-moral or immoral system, is off base. This is the same guy. He's like, he's supposed to be, we're supposed to look at this as like, oh, he's so principled and he's standing by his ideology. This is the same guy who went after Bernie Sanders because Bernie Sanders said it's a right to get health care and somebody had to pay an arm and a leg to just get medicine to live. And he responded to that by saying, oh, wow, I go to the furniture store to get furniture and it's too expensive. How crazy is that? He's comparing health care to fucking buying a furniture. This guy is going to be some sort of moral arbiter? No, his priorities are insanely fucked up. His priorities are insanely dumb. He supported the Iraq war, an illegal offensive war against a country that didn't attack us. And he's going to morally judge somebody for being gay? I mean, that's the equivalent of like, hey, what, do, you, uh, do you like chocolate or do you like vanilla? I like chocolate. Oh, yeah, well, I like vanilla. Huh. How, how dare you? That's what that is. Who cares? He, so what? He doesn't want to procreate. Who the fuck cares? whoop de freaking do there's no moral dimension to that. There's no evil or, or sinful activity to that. You know what's wrong? Fucking murder, rape, violent assault, things like that. That's wrong. That's incorrect. But Ben Shapiro, oh, looking the person, somebody who's supposed to be his friend in the eye. No, no. I mean, I couldn't celebrate, you know, your marriage because, you know, I'm quite literally bigoted against gay people. But it's okay. I also hate non-Jews, too. I wouldn't go to an intermarriage. So in other words, you are not equal. You're not. By definition, you're not. If, if he's equal, what's equal? Well, I'd celebrate a, a marriage between a man and a woman. I'd go to that. So what's the equivalent of that? What is equal to that? Sure, I'll go to the gay, gay marriage celebration. Who cares? You're equal. What he's saying to you, Dave, is you are not equal. That's what he's saying. So your whole little fucking intellectual dark, dark web tap dance it's all for naught. It's all for nothing. These people are what you originally thought they were back when you fucking had a functioning brain. <laughs> okay? That's, and again, the point is not like, oh, what are you on the left? You're so triggered. It's not that I'm triggered. It's that Ben Shapiro's a fucking idiot. Like, that, that ideology is dumb. That ideology is wrong. That ideology is based on nothing but fucking Bronze Age books back when these assholes didn't even know what science was. And he's going to look to this book for his morality? for his modern view on what makes sense? No, it'll lead you in the wrong direction, time and time and time again. 
And let's not overlook the, the thing he said about non-Jews, too. Think about that. I don't know how anybody, I mean, he's saying it to you. Like, no, I don't think you're equal if you're a non-Jew. If you're a non-Jew and you're going to marry a Jewish woman, I wouldn't go to that. I wouldn't go to an intermarriage because you're not equal. If you were equal, I'd go to the marriage. You're not equal. You're not equal. That's sinful. Your existence is sinful. You marrying a Jewish woman is sinful. So, okay, we know where you stand. <laughs> we know exactly where you stand. You're on team. My tribe is superior. And I will act in accordance with that. I do not view you as, you're an, as if you're an equal if you're gay or if you're a non-Jew. Thank you, Ben. Thank you for you know, making clear your contempt for the overwhelming majority of the country. Now, if you're somebody who's been a Ben Shapiro fan to this point, okay, at least now you know what, is, what the reality of his beliefs are. If you think, hey, that's kind of a little fucked up, but more importantly, that's just really fucking stupid, well, you have other options on the menu. You can ditch somebody like Ben Shapiro and you can go listen to any of the other commentators, myself included, who are not completely and utterly lost up our own ass of silly fundamentalism. Okay. All right, let's talk about a positive development when it comes to free speech. So I have a huge win in Rave Dubin's battle of ideas here. Uh, you're going to hear him talk about this nonstop. Because, you know, all he cares about is the issue of free speech. It's his primary issue. So take a look at what just happened. This is from Splinter News. They say, in 2017, Texas became one of more than two dozen states to pass a law or have taken some sort of executive action explicitly targeting the pro-Palestinian boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement. The Texas statute barred the state from doing business with companies involved in the movement. The free speech concerns here are rather obvious. And on Thursday night, a federal judge ruled against the law. U.S. District Judge for the Western District of Texas, Robert Pittman, an appointee of Barack Obama, delivered an injunction to the Texas law on, uh, to the Texas law on Thursday night. The lead plaintiff, Bahia Amawi, we've covered her story before, is an Austrian-born American citizen and speech pathologist with family members in Palestine. Due to her support of BDS, Amawi had refused to sign a contract with a local school district for whom she had worked for nearly a decade, which explicitly said she wouldn't boycott Israel and thus was forced to end her relationship with the school district. In his opinion, Pittman directly took on the fact that just five lawmakers in the entire Texas legislature voted against the bill. Quote, Texas touts these numbers as the statute's strength, Pittman wrote, in finding uh, that the law violates the First Amendment. Quote, they are, rather, its weakness. Later, he wrote that the statute threatens to suppress unpopular ideas and manipulate the public debate through coercion rather than persuasion. This, this the First Amendment does not allow. This is the third time that the federal courts have struck down anti-BDS laws, in January 2018, a federal judge temporarily blocked a similar law in Kansas, after which the state amended the law. Last September, another federal court followed with a ruling against an anti-BDS law in Arizona. Arizona Governor Doug Ducey 
signed an, an amended law last week. So now this has repeatedly been slapped down in federal courts. Why? Because it's obvious, as I've stated in the segments that we've done about this, this is an open and shut case. I mean, you're going you're gonna to come to me with a case of the government is now nullifying all contracts with anybody who supports boycott, divestment, and sanctions of Israel. So if you support that, we are going to punish that political speech and say the government will under no circumstances do business with you. Well, what the fuck do you think that is? That's the definition of targeting political speech. That is like the heart of what the First Amendment is there to protect. It's there to protect political speech. So where's the question? There is no question, and every court so far has ruled that. But what I found fascinating was the wording in this, because the wording in this was, the statute threatens to suppress unpopular ideas. Quite literally, this is by law threatening to do that. And manipulate the public debate through coercion rather than persuasion. So in other words, I'm not going to explain to you why it's illogical and irrational for you to support BDS. I'm going to use the power of the state to censor you. Wow, this is almost exactly what Rave Dubin has been saying he cares most about since he started his show, The Rubin Report. Has he said anything about this? Oh, yeah, he didn't. Oh, that's so weird. Oh, that's so strange. It's almost like he's not principled and he only trots this out to bolster his side of the argument. Rave Dubin is a massive, massive, massive defender of Israel. And so... When it's an issue where we're talking about pro-Palestine free speech, even though it is a literal First Amendment case. So in other words, this is not just like an ancillary issue where it's only the principle of free speech that's in question. This is like, no, the legality of it. The actual First Amendment and a court proceeding where the government is trying to censor speech. And where is he? only trots out those free speech arguments when it's to bolster his side. It's not principled. That's why he'll, ne- why he'll never defend things he doesn't agree with. And now you see it. You had to come to this show, a left-wing political show, to hear about the actual threats to free speech in this country. Don't forget that. Because right-wingers, they like to cloak themselves in the issue of freedom of speech, but they don't actually fundamentally support it in material ways. Have you heard, how many times have you heard right-wingers come out against Donald Trump for saying we should open up the libel laws to sue the media? Candace Owens, just the other week on Twitter, was responding to Donald Trump Jr., who didn't like an article about him. And Candace Owens says, this is crazy. Trump does need to open up the libel laws. What? The same people who screamed about free speech on Monday, on Tuesday, they're like, yeah, cannot wait to censor my political opponents. They're hypocrites, guys. They're frauds. They don't know what the fuck they're talking about. They don't care. They're playing for a team. That's what they're doing. But I'm here to tell you the actual state of free speech in America. And thankfully, because of our wonderful First First Amendment, they're actually, courts are actually protecting vulnerable communities who are expressing opinions that are going against the powerful. All right, let me take a final break, and then when we come back, I have uh, 
a report on the impact of Trump's tax cut. You're not going to want to miss that. Vice News did a great report on our infrastructure. And then the Republican failure at grassroots fundraising will bring a smile to your face. Stay right there. We'll be right back.
bitch. All right, y'all. grab myself another one of these protein shakes. This one's a uh, different flavor. I had vanilla last night. This one is chocolate, and it's a little bit better, if I don't say so myself. I didn't look at the expiration date before I sipped it. I just did now. I'm good, everybody. Relax. December 2019. Plenty of time. All right. <clears throat> All right, let's move on to explain how Trump's tax returns screwed regular people. Now this released a report on the impact of Trump's tax cut and um most of you are probably not going to be surprised to learn that it actually had a negative impact on many working families. So there's a bunch of like little clever tricks in the bill that really make it so that it's not a tax cut for regular people. It's not a tax cut for working people. We warned you from the beginning that this is really a ploy to cut taxes for corporations and to cut taxes for the mega rich. Don't be surprised by that, man. Donald Trump ran against Goldman Sachs. He ripped Hillary for having you know, Goldman Sachs advisors. And then as soon as he was elected, he picked like three or four different Goldman Sachs people to come in his administration. And they were largely responsible for, you know, setting the agenda and, and determining the tax bill and all that stuff. So don't be surprised by this. If you are surprised by this, that's a little shocking. But let's take a look how this bill impacted working families, and then we'll discuss refund was about half of what it normally is. We were really banking on the refund. I called my husband immediately. He's crying. So I went back in and I, I checked everything and then I started to cry. This year I just don't have a refund. My refund was about half of what it normally is. It used to be like 4000 and then I got 2000 this year. This year, instead of getting back the $5,000 Wright was expecting and that she and her husband got last year, the Houston mom found they actually owed the government money. With the birth of new daughter Olivia just three weeks ago, Wright says her family was counting on a tax refund to cover the cost of her unpaid maternity leave. We were really banking on the refund because we, you know, we live paycheck to paycheck. We can't, in a sense, save as of right now. With three kids in college, the Edney family is now scrambling. Last year, they got a $10,000 refund, but because of high property taxes, this year, they owe $10,000. Well, I don't think anybody would have been able to do the tax cuts like I did. We got the greatest tax cuts ever. Huh.
last year, her family of four's tax refund topped $3,600. But this time around, when she did their taxes? I plugged it all in, and at first I thought, oh my goodness, we're getting $8,000 back. And then I realized it was the wrong color. So I went back in, and I, I checked everything, and then I started to cry. I believe that he isn't showing his income tax returns because he didn't pay anything, and we are paying in money, and he's paying nothing when he's making billions or whatever he's at, so maybe he just doesn't understand. We had no idea that this was coming, and I feel terrible for families that are going to have the same shock that we had, that that refund check we thought was coming will not be. This was also the trick during the Bush years. After the Bush tax cuts, same thing happened. People thought like, oh, yay, look, we just got a tax cut, us regular folks. And then when it came time for their expected refunds, they were either less than expected or people owed money when they thought they'd be getting money back. I mean, it's always been a trick, man. It's always been a trick. And I've, I've spoken about this for years now. I, I never understood why the Democrats don't, um, don't hammer away on the one argument that Republicans try to use to say they're for the working class. The one argument that Republicans always say over and over is, well, we want to put more money in your pocket, and Democrats don't. They want to take more of your money. And I know, and it's anecdotal, but personal experience, that that is the argument that works on many regular people who earn just, you know, uh, standard income, middle-class income, that's the argument where they go, oh, well, then I like the Republicans because I want more money in my pocket. And I just don't get why the Democrats haven't stole that because it's actually true in the case of the Democrats. When you look at the tax proposals, you know, you see that Democrats, as a general rule, want to keep taxes lower for people who are making like $200,000 a year or less. When the Democrats talk about raising taxes, it's mostly on the top 1% to 5%. Now, Republicans, on the other hand, they fundamentally want to raise taxes on working class people and just cut it for the rich. Because they always talk about how like, what, 40% of the country pays no... um, federal income tax. They always bring that up as if like, well, they should be paying federal income tax. The 40% of the country doesn't make dick. (laughs) They make nothing. You want to pay income taxes on what? On what earnings? On fucking 12 grand in earnings? You want them to pay income tax? No. Those are the people who need help. So this idea of like, oh, we're for the working class, but also, by the way, we want to raise taxes on people making $75,000 a year or less, and they do. And by the way, in the Trump tax bill, Um, According to the Joint Committee on Taxation, every income group below $75,000 is going to see a tax increase under this bill by 2027. Now, by the same token, um, 80% of the benefits of this bill go to the top 1% over a decade. 80%. So all of the cuts for regular folks are temporary, and they have a sunset provision. All the tax cuts for the rich and for corporations are permanent. 
this shows you where their loyalty lies. And also, you saw it right there. Even the first year, people thought, oh, I got a tax cut. This is great. Well, what happened with your refund at the end of the year? So it's not, it's never what the marketing says it is. These are the Republicans also claim they're the party of fiscal responsibility. They just blew over a trillion dollar hole in the deficit from their shitty tax bill. And then they turn around and say, we got to cut Medicare and Social Security because, goodness gracious, look at this budget deficit. You just made it worse, you assholes. So they're full of shit, man. And they're going to, they'll lie, they'll mislead you and all that just to get their way. And then they'll pass the buck and go, ah, blame the Democrats or something for why your refund isn't, isn't what it used to be. No, that's your fault and it's clear. Okay, next. Oh. Let's talk about how shitty our infrastructure is with a really good report from Vice News. Let me set this up. So Vice News did a really great report on our infrastructure and how it failed in the wake of uh, record flooding in the Midwest. Take a look at this. In 1936, Congress assigned the task of flood protection to the Army Corps of Engineers. More than 100,000 miles of levees were built across America. And without them, wide swaths of the Midwest would flood every year. But by restricting rivers, levees make them deeper and more powerful, increasing the risk of devastating floods. In 2019, these aging systems buckled under the combined pressure of stronger rivers and heavier rains. And with more rain on the way, the Army Corps is scrambling to put temporary fixes in place. This is a record flood. So all the floods we've had in the past, nothing can touch what we what we just went through this last month. Uh-huh. Everywhere we see a yellow dot, that's a breach. That's a breach. That's a levee failing. It's a levee failing. You know, the first thing we need to do is close these critical breaches to stop the flow in and, and try to get this infrastructure back in place because we need the infrastructure to repair the levees. You know, without these roads open, you can't we can't transport material. Can't transport material or equipment. You know, we're done. What are you doing here now? This is a temporary fix. We have emergency contracts. They're quick contracts, very minimal design. We give the contractors a couple hours to bid it. They jump on it right away. We're done within a week. The floodwaters haven't even subsided yet. So can you describe, like, the scope of the challenge? It's a mess. It's, it's, it's a biblical flood for us. You know, it's going to tax the resources of everybody around. We have over 500 miles of levee to provide to reduce the risk of flooding. Okay. Of those 500 miles, we had over 50 breaches. A long-term solution will take years. Simply making barriers higher as the climate changes could make future floods worse. So the Army Corps is trying to widen the river as they rebuild. Are people asking you to build the levees higher? There's a press conference in Council Bluffs for the governors of Nebraska, Iowa, Missouri Approach that question. Why are we building it back to the same heights? Should we build it higher? Should we build the levees different? If we built it in front of the existing levee, we'd be constraining the water way more, and that would tend to let the water rise. So a levee behind the existing breach 
lets the water rate get a little bit bigger, so it's not going to cause the water to rise up. So it's going to provide the same level of protection that we had before. So there's going to be a lot of setback levees we have to build. We won't have a choice but to build a setback levee. And you have money for that? No. No. Oh, there. We, we needed appropriations from Congress. We need additional funds to have that happen. Politicians in the Midwest are trying to get those funds, but they'll need to take into account a landscape that's changing fast. You know, I said after 93, you know, I was old enough to remember it. I remember helping my dad. We moved all this stuff out and this and that. Never thought we'd see anything like it. And then 2011 came along, and uh, it was completely different. But, you know, historic floods, levees breaking and this and that. I thought, man, we're never going to see that again. Well, here we are eight years later, and it's worse. Sorry your life was totally destroyed and our infrastructure is crumbling under your feet. We wasted all the money we were going to use on that in Iraq and Afghanistan. That's if the government was being honest. That's what they'd say. Like, oh, money to fix levees that have been there since the fucking New Deal? These things are ancient. Ancient? Our infrastructure is mostly built during the New Deal. Instead of upgrading it, we wasted $7 trillion in Iraq. $7 trillion. Let that number sink in. A couple trillion more in Afghanistan. Sprinkle in a few more countries where we're bombing and waging a shadow war in Africa and fucking trying to topple the Iranian government. And now we're doing the same with Venezuela and trying to focus on that. As if regular people are like, oh, you know, I do want you to fix the levees that just breached and flooded my house that I've had for four generations, but I'd rather you go topple Maduro. It's embarrassing, man. It's embarrassing at this point. Our country is so broken and corrupt that we got to the point, like I'm pissed we even got to the point where the levees breached and there was flooding and there weren't enough upgrades in the first place. And like now the shit hit the fan and now it's scrambling to try to fix it. And they can't even do a permanent fix right now because they have to do the temporary fixes because it's already fucking flooded. So this is the problem, man. This is the problem. I just spoke to somebody who um, went to China. And they were talking about how they have high-speed rail in China. And you're going, like, over 300 miles an hour. And I'm sitting there thinking, like, China has high-speed rail. And we don't. Like, I'm, I'm, that, that alone pisses me off to no end. I think there should be high-speed rail all across this country, connecting major city to major city. I really do. I think that that should be the case. I think you should be able to go from New York City to D.C., D.C. to fucking Orlando. You know, like, there should be high-speed rail all across this country. In the same way that we had the New Deal and the highway system was created, why not do a high-speed rail uh, system now? Something that Democrats and you force the Republicans to get on board through sheer political will and through, you know, ruthlessly calling them out until they support it. Why not? Why not do that? On top of upgrading our current existing infrastructure, our airports are total shit, total garbage. I I visited my sister and I had to drive, uh, you know, over the GWB recently and... Man, like, there's so many little air potholes everywhere, fucking, like, legit crumbling beams over, like, you look to your left and you see something crumbling. This is, like, embarrassing shit, man. We no longer look like a developed country in many ways. And it's pathetic. It's pathetic. 
As a New Yorker, it saddens me. Um, so there you have it. The chickens are already coming home to roost, and that should terrify everybody, and that should mobilize us to get acting. All right, let's go to Mitch McConnell and how embarrassing the Republicans are. You're you're all going to love this story. So this one I enjoy deeply. It's hilarious. Take a look. According to a report in Politico, GOP plans to use online fundraising more effectively for 2020 candidates who are facing uphill battles is not panning out as they had hoped. Recognizing that online fundraising is the wave of the future, GOP strategists have made stabs at bringing in more cash, but have already fallen way behind their Democratic counterparts. Noting the GOP has vowed to work harder to appeal to small dollar donors after getting hit by a green wave of Democratic online cash in 2018, but some of the most vulnerable Republican senators up for re-election in 2020 are off to a slow start, Politico adds. Only two of the six most endangered Republican senators topped six figures in digital spending in the first quarter. Now, they go on to say, according to the report, GOP strategists are panicking about the shortfall with memories of the 2018 midterm. Every Democrat has outraised them. Every Democrat. The losers include Senator Cory Gardner, Joni Ernst and Tom Tillis. And um, this is what happens when you try to do grassroots fundraising and you're fundamentally not a grassroots party. So let me break this down for everybody because I think this is really important. Donald Trump was able to raise a a decent amount of money from um, regular people, from the grassroots. Why? Two reasons. Number one, fake populism. So people really thought like, oh, he's fighting the political establishment and he's looking out for me and he wants to keep my job here. And so regular people were like, oh, shit, he's on our side. Let's donate him. Now, beyond that, he threw red meat directly to the fringe of the Republican base. With what? All of his kind of open bigotry. We're going to do a total and complete shutdown of Muslims. We're going to build the wall. The Mexicans are not sending their best. They're sending criminals, rapists. I assume some are good people. So he kind of flies the freak flag of the far right and is like, yeah, I'll openly pander to white nationalists. Whereas Mitt Romney and and Mitch McConnell, like these guys are much more coded in their bigotry. So you, but the dog whistles only go so far with people who aren't bright enough to hear it. So Trump was like, fuck a dog whistle. I got a human whistle, bitch. And so between his fake populism and wearing, flying that freak flag and saying, yeah, I'm a bigot, fuck it, who cares? Um, that's why he gets the grassroots fundraising from people. Now, he also took big money, even though he pretended he didn't. But a guy like Mitch McConnell and, and all these Republican senators, they don't have a grassroots bone in their body, man. So when you don't have a grassroots bone in your body, you don't know how to do fake populism. You're too coded in your bigotry. What do they do? All these guys raise all their money from corporate America. All of it. 
And so now they're trying to do like, oh, let's try to do the small dollar fundraising thing. And nobody's donating to them because nobody likes them. So you're not going to be able to repeat the success of a Bernie Sanders or, or insurgent left-wing candidates like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. All of her money came from small dollar donors because she's a justice Democrat. You're not going to be able to recreate that because you don't fight for people. All you do is fight for corporations. That's why all your money came from corporations. So this idea of like, well, oh, we'll, just, we'll start raising small dollar loans. This will totally work. Fucking Mitch McConnell and Tom Tillis? Who's going to be like, oh, I got to give to Tom Tillis. I can't wait for him to substance, substantively improve my life. They know you're not going to substantively improve their lives. It's not going to happen because it hasn't happened and it won't happen because you don't give a fuck. It's so funny watching a, a, a party of total corporate sellout elites pretend like, oh, we'll try to raise grassroots. <laughs> Good luck. Your entire party stabs the grassroots in the back. So why do you expect them to turn around and be like, I can't wait to donate to you? All right, let's talk about Saudi Arabia because they're at it again. So Amnesty International is reporting on some grim news here. Saudi Arabia, 37 people were put to death in a shocking execution spree. The execution of 37 people convicted on terrorism charges marks an alarming escalation in Saudi Arabia's use of the death penalty that Amnesty International today among those put to death was a young man who was convicted of a crime that took place while he was under the age of 18. Today's mass execution is a chilling demonstration of the Saudi Arabian authorities' callous disregard for human life. It is also yet another gruesome indication of how the death penalty is being used as a political tool to crush dissent from within the country's Shia minority, said Lynn Malouf, Middle East Research Director at Amnesty International. The majority of those executed were Shia men, who were convicted after sham trials that violated international fair trial standards, which relied on confessions extracted through torture. They include 11 men who were convicted of spying for Iran and sentenced to death after a grossly unfair trial. At least 14 others executed were convicted of violent offenses related to their participation in anti-government demonstrations in Saudi Arabia's Shia-majority eastern province between 2011 and 2012. The 14 men were subjected to prolonged pretrial detention and told the court that they were tortured or otherwise ill-treated during their interrogation in order to have confessions extracted from them. Also among those executed is Abdul Karim Al-Hawaj, a young Shia man who was arrested at the age of 16 and convicted of offenses related to his involvement in anti-government protests. Under international law, the use of the death penalty against people who were under the age of 18 at the time of the crime is strictly prohibited. Amnesty International understands that the families were not informed about the executions in advance and were shocked to learn of the news. So, listen, you would hear much, much, much more about this if it was a U.S. enemy. But since it's a U.S. ally, it's kind of buried. The news is kind of buried. And let's not mince words here. Saudi Arabia is basically killing people for protesting the government. And unfortunately, this should come as no surprise because they 
put to death and sentenced to death a bunch of women's rights activists who were just asking for the ability to drive. And what did they do? Um, you know, they said, the government said, oh, we are now going to let women drive. And then they turn around and try to put to death, and are putting to death, women who fought for the right to drive. Now, wait, if you agree with them and you're allowing that to be the case, then why would you put them to death? I'll tell you why. Because they're authoritarians. When you're authoritarian, you don't tolerate dissent. When there is dissent, you punish it as strictly as possible so that there won't be dissent in the future and you can get away with doing whatever the fuck you want to do. So this is the, this is the place we're at right now, man. This is what's happening. 37 people put to death. Mostly these people are put to death because they're protesting the government and because they're Shia. And, of course, you know, Saudi Arabia is a fundamentalist Sunni government. And they're, they, they're viciously oppressive against Shias. So this is disgusting. And hilariously, they're on the UN Human Rights Council. They're on the UN Human Rights Council, and they're putting people to death for protesting. So do me a favor, U.S., never, ever, 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 ever give me that bullshit line about, we're doing what we're doing around the world to protect freedom and democracy. If you care about freedom, if you care about democracy, you would immediately try to stop your ally from executing people for fucking protesting, but you're not going to do that. And in fact, what you're going to do is keep giving them weapons, keep giving them money, and keep aiding their genocide in Saudi Arabia because you don't care about freedom, you don't care about democracy, you don't care about human rights. All you care about is who's on your team and expanding your power and influence. So we act like every empire has ever acted throughout human history. It's not about doing the right thing or being above it all or holding people to a standard. No. It's about cynically weaponizing those arguments used against our political enemies so that they fall in line and do the bidding of our government and our corporations. Okay, final story of the day, everybody. So Time Magazine has a fascinating report out on happiness. Take a look at this. Americans are some of the most stressed out people in the world, according to a Gallup annual global emotions report. For the report, Gallup polled about 1,000 adults in countries around the world last year about the emotions they'd experienced the day before the survey. Negative emotions and experiences, stress, anger, worry, sadness, and physical pain, were common around the world tying 2017's record-setting levels, the report found. In the U.S., 55% of respondents told Gallup they felt a lot of stress the day before, well above the global average of 35%. Wow. Gallup's research found that lower-income Americans tended to, be, tended to report more stress, as did those who disapprove of President Donald Trump. Prior studies and polls have found that finances, health and health care, and politics and current events are leading stressors for Americans, and social media and technology are frequently blamed for stress and mental health issues as well. Many of the countries experiencing roughly as much stress as the U.S. were embroiled in political turmoil of some kind, whether humanitarian, economic, or security related. Greece, the Philippines, and Tanzania were the only countries with stress rates higher 
than the U.S. Albania, Iran, and Sri Lanka were tied with the U.S. While some stress is normal and even healthy, chronic stress is connected to a range of conditions, including mental health issues, cognitive changes, and chronic disease. That makes widespread stress a public health issue. The Iranian economy is currently imploding. The government is totally unstable. And our stress levels are on par with theirs. Now, it's tough to make sweeping conclusions based off this report for a very simple reason. The factors that go into determining your stress level are not simple. So much goes into it, from your own personal psychology to your upbringing, to cultural forces, to the standard things that you would expect, like income level and access to health care and income. So, like, there's so many different factors that go into whether or not you're stressed and how much you're stressed. And, of course, it's theoretically possible to be incredibly wealthy, but you work a lot, so therefore you're more stressed than somebody who might be of a lower income but they're just not as stressed all the time. So there's, it's a very complex analysis, so it's hard to draw broad sweeping conclusions from this. All I know is that that is pathetic, that the U.S. is kind of tied with nations that you would not expect when it comes to stress, which means we're either uniquely paranoid and anxious for no reason, or perhaps there's actually a serious you know, fundamental and systemic problems in our society that need to be addressed. And I would, argue, I would argue the latter. It is that. We... We have serious problems that need to be addressed, and we should try to ameliorate these incredibly high stress levels. And by the way, so in, in previous UN reports, we've discussed them in detail, and it turns out that the countries you expect self-report being the happiest, and that's, you know, Norway, Denmark, Iceland, Sweden, all those Scandinavian social democracies. But again, I told you this report is a little different because it's not saying, hey, are you happy? It's more how stressed out are you, which is the other end of the spectrum. So it's actually not the the social democracies that finished at the top in this one. It's uh, Paraguay or Paraguay and Panama. Those are the number one in terms of least stressed. So for me, man, I mean, I think all I know is the obvious things that'll help tick down that number. And those things are we should have paid vacation time by law. I love what they do in many European countries where they basically have a month off. They have like their own adult summer vacation in a lot of those countries. I think we should copy that. I think we should have a, a, you know, fewer hours in the work week because there's no doubt Americans are massively, massively overworked. So basically working less is one thing. I think having unions um, to increase wages is another thing. Making the minimum wage a living wage is another part of this. Free health care and free college, I think, would help de-stress people because medical bills, I'm sure, is a cause of stress. Um, uh, medical bills are. Uh, student loan debt is. There's a lot of stuff that's surface level but definitely causes stress. I think that's true. And then outside of my realm of expertise, which is more political, you have to get into the psychological and the personal and, and see – Are there cultural forces that are pushing us to be stressed out? Is it part of the American psyche now that that's what it is? And I know that we take, you know, antidepressants more than anybody else and anti-anxiety medications and stuff like that. 
apparently it's not working because we're more stressed. I don't know what the answer is on the psychological front, but obviously that needs to be addressed there as well. And uh, overall, the results are just pathetic for us. <laughs> I mean, seriously. Greece, the Philippines, and Tanzania, only countries with stress rates higher than us, and Albania, Iran, and Sri Lanka are tied with us. You draw your own conclusions from that. All I know is we need to make serious, serious changes. All right. Out of time, baby, out of time. Out of show, actually, I should say. All right, love you guys. I'll talk to you soon. Everybody enjoy the rest of your day. I hope there's a Kylan Corn tomorrow, but you never know because he's on the road all the time now for work. Anyway, I'm out, y'all. Peace.